Welcome to Access Answers. I'm Julia Vergara, your host, along with Angela O'Pry. So if you don't already know, Access Sciences is dedicated to supporting and promoting Girls Who Code. Um, so Girls Who Code is a nonprofit organization striving to close the gender gap in tech. And joining us today is one of our own Women Who Code, Shermaine Hamer. So we are so happy to have Shermaine on the call with us today. She is truly one of the most beautiful women I have ever met, and her entire family is magazine cover, but also one of the most intelligent women that I have ever met. Her computer science background is really astonishing, and her experience with Girls Who Code in the chapter in Baton Rouge. So Shermaine, welcome. Good morning, everyone. I'm really excited to be here with you ladies this morning. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. Why don't we start by talking a little bit about your background? Okay. And I often find that a difficult question to answer, so I'll do my best. <laughs> I have been in this career for over, gosh, 20 years now, probably 21 years. So I have a lot of projects. I've worked with a lot of wonderful, intelligent people. So it's been a really good career and I've enjoyed the vast majority of it. <laughs> so I guess just to get started, I like to think of myself as a developer, a problem solver. I'm also a mentor, a technical lead, and now a project manager. So that kind of, in a nutshell, describes my career over the last 20 or so years. And most of my technical experience has been working with government agencies, contractors, and private sector software implementations. So it's been, like I said, it's been a fun ride. I often like to call what I do um, fun, which... It's simple, simple <laughs> word, but it gets the message across that I really enjoy my work. And I don't think you could do something like this for over 20 years and not enjoy it. So with, along with that, um, I, I do have a master's degree in computer science, and my undergraduate degree was in computer information systems. And I know that degree changes quite often. I've heard it called management information systems from other people. It's just, I think it's a term that changes, you know, throughout different universities, but it's very similar as it's computer science with a more of a business background for undergrad. And then I went strictly computer science for the master's degree. And I don't know if that was as much fun as working, but <laughs> <laughs> I got, I got through it. So, so after that, I um, worked Gosh, let me start at the beginning. I'm sorry. So my work experience started with State Farm Insurance Companies at the corporate headquarters in Bloomington, Illinois, where I also had an intern when I was in college. And that helped me to make my decision of working for State Farm. And it was an, a great decision, a really wonderful company with it's a large company, but they really are a good neighbor, you know, as they're <laughs> there's a lot of good people that work there and I learned a great deal about coding and structuring programs and and just your foundation of like the software development life cycle so I got a lot of my foundation at State Farm 
in Illinois. And then I moved on to get my master's degree because I wanted a bit more of a technical background. Of course, I, when when you're a technical person, it, it seems like it's never enough for us. We're always looking for something else, more to do, bigger <laughs> projects. So after the master's degree, I moved on to Lockheed Martin, and that was in New Orleans, Louisiana. And I had a wonderful experience there because Lockheed Martin had a long-term contract with NASA. So they were responsible for building the external tank for the space shuttle. And I had a wonderful opportunity to work on the PMES system, which is the paperless manufacturing engineering system, which managed all of the construction, the materials and the building of the external tank. And it was phenomenal just walking out onto the floor where they were building the tank for the space shuttle. It's difficult to describe how tall it is and how wide. <laughs> it's beyond comprehension. I mean, it was in this, I can't even call it a warehouse. It was like maybe 20 to 30. What you think of a warehouse, it's like 20 to 30 of those. That's the size. Of, wow. The tank was in there and everyone's working. And I got to speak to all of the engineers, you know, about any issues they were having with the software. And then I bring those requirements back and, you know, we test the system to make sure that it was working. And then we push out the updates to production. So it felt like a, it was a really important role. And I took it very seriously, even though I was more of a support role there, but it was a wonderful opportunity to do something great and feel like you were a part of something that was important. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds like a huge project. Yeah, it was it was wonderful actually. And of course the NASA changed the space shuttle program so they're no longer building the tank in that manner, but all of the people that worked there were just really some of the smartest people that we have in this country. So it was really wonderful just to be around that every day. So I I, I did move on from that role into working for the state of Louisiana for several years. And I've had some really great experiences there as well. Like I said, many projects, so many that sometimes I'll forget what I've worked on in the past. <laughs> My brain is like, you remember, I don't know, you, you ladies are really young, but there's an old, <laughs> old Rolodex. Do you remember the Rolodex that you had to roll to find yeah, information? <laughs> That's, that's, my that's dad how my brain works. <laughs> yes. So sometimes I'll have to roll back my Rolodex for years <laughs> to try and remember something. And I know it's in there and I know it'll come to me, but sometimes yes. it takes a little while for me to remember. <laughs> so that kind of brings me to present day working with Access Sciences. And this project that I'm currently working on is really a, a lot of fun, like I said before. So I'm working with a client, a Louisiana client for Access Sciences to implement um, a new electronic document management system. And it's a huge enterprise-wide project where we're working with several different groups and several different agencies to make sure that this is successful. And what's really exciting about this project is that it's the first of its kind. And Access Sciences is like the bridge 
bringing these two to three separate agencies together and we're building this new architecture that will be the framework for other agencies that come along in the future. So like we're establishing the template and the procedures and the processes of what other agencies will need to follow to be successful in implementing, you know, their enterprise document management system. I hope that makes sense. I try to keep it really high level. (laughs) (laughs) You had such a long career and so much experience. I'm just so happy that Access Sciences has you now. (laughs) I know. Happy to be here. (laughs) So with that project that you're working on right now, did you have any uh, pivotal changes this year in 2020, you know, working from home or changes to the project? I can say, you know, of course, we're all living through this pandemic. And for our project, you know, we had to switch to 100% virtual. And I work with a really exceptional project team, and they have been able to move forward without skipping a beat. I mean, there wasn't even a day of adjusting. They just, we just all moved forward into this new way of working. And it's worked well for my team because of the type of work that we do. Honestly, I have to say the most, maybe the main challenges that we faced have been environmental as in the hurricane. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was going to ask about that, how it's going these days. Yeah, it it seems like every other week we've had a hurricane this year. And I live here. I've been here for many years, like 15 years, and we've never had this many hurricanes in one season. It's kind of scary sometimes, you know, we're just, we don't understand what's happening. I know. We recently did some internal communication about what our employees are thankful for. And one of my favorites was from an employee in Louisiana that was thankful for a running generator. Oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> that was one of the things on, on my list. My husband said, what do we need? And I said, gosh, we need a generator. And he says, well, they're all sold out. But <laughs> we have wonderful neighbors. And he said, just, you know, purchase a, one of those industrial plugs that's long enough. And we'll make sure that your refrigerator is, you know, has you have power there. So we, you know, we were really grateful to them for sharing their generator with us. Oh, what great neighbors. I know in Houston too, we all have to have generators here. Yes. It's, and then you have to really think about the safety of how to, I mean, you have to become an expert in how to run a generator, you know, it's, there are safety concerns with that. Yes, certainly. So throughout your career and your background, you were able to make so much progress and have so many accomplishments, all the while building a family with three beautiful children, two of which are twins that are adorable. Tell us what that's like. Thank you so much. Um, Wow, that's a good question. And I always have to give a very honest answer, being (laughs) in technology and having a family. I, I love women who say that balance is everything and I'm always seeking that balance and sometimes it's difficult because your children I mean they go through so many phases when they're babies you you think it's it's difficult because gosh you know having a baby is is a lot of work however 
as they grow older, their needs change and you have to change with them. So I'm not going to say that it gets easier, but I have learned when to stop one part of my life and start another. And there are some times where you have to let go. And I've been a perfectionist my entire life. And I'm working now on not being a perfectionist because <laughs> it, it helps for you to learn to let go and to move on to working on something else and not being perfect. No one's a perfect mother or a perfect, you know, developer. So I just do the best that I can and I take it one day at a time. So I know that your role as a mom has also changed with the pandemic. So tell us what it's like just to be a parent during this pandemic. Wow, that's a hard hitting question here. Um, (laughs) I, I have to say, I think there was a New York Times article that a mom wrote that really resonated with me. And she was a New York mother. And she said that in the beginning of the pandemic, if you had told Americans mom, American moms that, you know, you have to do A through Z or one, two, three, just give us a list of things that we have to do in the next two to three months to get over this. She said, we would have done it. And I agreed with her. Like I would have done <laughs> anything. I would have done anything to not have to teach my children at home. <laughs> yes. Whatever whatever was asked of me, I would have done, you know, give up salary for two months, whatever. But I value teachers so much more now because it's a hard job. I've had to do it for a few months and it's difficult being there to support them and support their teachers and work full time. And what grade are they in? I have, my twins are actually in the fifth grade, which nowadays fifth grade is like college. I don't know if you know that. (laughs) They have to write like essays and their math is quite difficult. So they they work very hard. And I also have a third grader. Oh. Yes. And they're actually back in school now. We were allowed to send the children back to school about a month ago. So they preferred to go back. And I I don't know how long it's going to last. You know, the, the pandemic and COVID changes every day. So I'm just, we're just waiting to see what happens. Well, I'm sure they were very excited to go back. My two nieces yes. are 15 and 12, and they are itching to get back in school, which you never thought you would hear from a 15 and 12 year old. Right. They want to be going to school. <laughs> I know it's it's strange for them even being at school, but it's it's better. You know, it's much better. Yes, I agree. There are so many benefits to being at home and being comfortable and being surrounded by family, you know, for us in the working world and also for children. But I think there is the component of feeling connected and having that in-person time with your peers is so important, especially for developing children. Right, right. Well, Julia and I only have dogs, which do not compare to children. <laughs> Julia is trying to raise a puppy right now. Aww. So she might take some of your mom advice, apply that to her little pup. <laughs> I mean, he's definitely not doing virtual school or anything. Right. So I think it's, it's a lot easier. <laughs> Maybe some yeah, virtual puppy training versus... classes. Gosh. I, yeah, I'm teaching him to sit versus teaching him fifth grade math, which I can't right. even. Well, that. <laughs> you still have to reinforce and have, 
disappointed, and so it's similar. <laughs> what other advice do you have for working moms? What would you say? I would definitely say that you have to get away. Well, that's what I do. So for me, <laughs> it's important for me to get away. <laughs> And even if it means hiding from your family, it's okay. Because <laughs> you're like, in my family, it's there's just a lot of need there. And it's the same thing. Uh, seriously, it's the same thing with a puppy. I mean, if you're there, sometimes they're not going to try on their own. So you have to kind of disappear and let them have some independence. My, my children are very dependent on me lots of times for every decision they make. So I'm trying to kind of help push them along now that they're 10 and eight into being a bit more independent and responsible. So I, I do try and get away. <laughs> <laughs> that is good advice. Yes. So some, you know, when they're really young, you cannot do that because they're young. And my husband and I often joke that when your children are babies and toddlers, they're constantly trying to kill themselves by accident. <laughs> we were like, what is wrong with these babies? Because, you know, our first our first set of kids were twins. So oh. we always say they and them, and it's just the way we are. And we were like, those kids are just always, we had gates everywhere. We have all of like the protective plugs, but they were always finding ways to just get into trouble so they're, when they're very young it, it's so hard you have to be really hands-on yes keep you on your toes for sure and challenge you it's like you know you think you have all the outlets covered and all the doorknobs right. protected but then you get one that's a climber and who knew <laughs> <laughs> yes that's so funny it's scary <laughs> yes yes well thankfully they um, I don't know. Actually, I was going to say, thankfully they grow out of that, but I don't know if they ever do because being a teenager is also pretty scary. <laughs> the thought of my niece driving a car is terrifying. <laughs> right. And then their personalities are, they stay the same. So if they're an adventurous like baby, they're going to be an adventurous teen and you're still worried. <laughs> yes. Yes. Todd loves to tell a story about his daughter climbing a wall. She was a climber. Gosh. So, nothing can stop her. Oh, wow. Access Answers is owned and operated by Access Sciences. We are a consulting and business process outsourcing firm specializing in information governance, technology enablement, and business strategy. Since 1985, our dynamic team of experts have been committed to meeting each of our clients' unique information needs. Simply put, we create value out of information chaos. As a Microsoft certified partner, we work with our clients of both private and public enterprises to organize their information and meet compliance in all Microsoft 365 platforms. If you're interested in partnering with Access Sciences, send us an email at info at accesssciences.com. So, Shermaine, take us back to, I guess, your elementary school, middle school, high school days and tell us a little bit about how you learned about coding and what got you into it. So, I grew up in West Texas, um, a town called Abilene, Texas, and it's the prettiest town you've ever seen. <laughs> and it was a, I, I grew up in a town with a really great school district and 
I think our education was excellent. However, when I was going through junior high and high school, I don't recall any coding or robotics camps or classes that were available. I'm not sure if it was just me not being aware or, but I didn't have any exposure to any of that. It's a typing class where we were, were once introduced to like this little dot matrix program where you could, it was more like an art program where you could add in the coordinates, X and Y coordinates to like create a Christmas tree. So that was the extent of my programming in the seventh grade, just creating a Christmas tree. Other than that, I went through high school, you know, just a normal high school student and taking those aptitude tests by your counselor. I think they pegged me as a helper. I, I wasn't sure what that meant. I still don't. It, it was really <laughs> time. <laughs> as a helper. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm totally against those type of assessments actually now because of that. Cause it, it was yes. really confusing for me in high school. I thought they were going to tell me something like profound, like this is what you should do with your life. <laughs> they told me nothing. So, so I moved on to college and I, I really was interested more in science and biology at first. And then I somehow stumbled into a programming course. I'm, I think it might've been an accident of um, just what was available. You know, if you wait too long, it's hard to get the courses that you would like. So I took an intro to programming and the first language was C++. And I thought it was just fantastic. I had never found something so challenging and so rewarding. And my greatest memories of that class is just how we, we had to work in a lab, by the way, there weren't any, like, most of us didn't have PCs back then. So this was like the late nineties. So I am dating myself. So we had a computer lab and one of my best memories of this time in college was working in the computer lab with all the other students and we would some of the more serious students or the people who learned that they were loving programming we would sit in the lab all day after class so we would sit in the lab for six seven eight hours just you know eating junk food and trying to figure out our programs and once we got the program working it was really fun to have someone come in and break your code so that's when I realized I was truly a nerd I mean that was just the most fun I had had in college, sitting in a computer lab, like working on code for seven hours a day. So it was, it was really fun. Good time. So that was kind of my introduction to code was actually in college. So I was a late, I guess, late considering how most people are introduced to code through gaming. I, I was never a gamer in that sense. And I was never interested in games. I'm still not. <laughs> So there are different paths to this career. And I actually find that I feel like I'm a more capable person when I talk to users because I'm a real person and I understand their frustrations. And I love talking to people and hearing about their concerns. And so maybe I am a helper. I love listening to their, their problems and trying to figure out a technical solution to their problems. So I know you've given a lot of talks on 
ethical computing. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is and why you're so passionate about it? Oh, I'd love to. So ethical computing has been, it was kind of something that was floating around for many years as I've worked on different projects. And I finally put a name to it a few years ago, what I was feeling and learning by working with different groups of people. And it's fundamentally, it's related to, it started out with, honestly, it started out with a fear, the fear of where technology is heading and where we're being led and how we're being led there. So I think fear is a natural motivator, but it did help to fuel my interest in ethical computing. What I mean about when I talk about fear is that a lot of like my friends and family and just general society, they're not as aware about technology and how it works as most of us in the industry are. And so like software and hardware artifacts are getting completely integrated into most aspects of our like professional, social, and private lives. And there are consequences to that. And it can have significant ethical implications. And I don't even think people are aware of what they're signing up for. For example, when you accept an agreement online to use a free software, what exactly are you agreeing to? (laughs) Do you understand what doors you're opening into your home when you use a smart bot like Alexa or Siri. And so I do like to focus on those areas of concern and just kind of get the discussion started. It's important for us to understand the decisions we're making and how they affect you and your family and your privacy. So I don't have, I mean, there's no means do I have all the answers, but I have a lot of questions and I enjoy going through a discussion about what trust is and who are we trusting? Do we understand that developers and coders are people too who often make mistakes? (laughs) And those people are designing AI, artificial intelligence that will make decisions for us in the future. And there are so many real world consequences And that's what I show whenever I do this talk. And I think it surprises people about the real world consequences can be extremely severe. It's a good point, because I think that's something me and a lot of other, you know, non-technical people never even think about. Right. And it's not it's not anyone's fault. But I do believe that consumerism and profit often overshadow ethics. And it's our responsibility as like developers and people in this industry to make sure that we keep it at the forefront. Like, I feel like it's my personal responsibility to bring it up. I'm really annoying, like at a party. Seriously. (laughs) I think I, I scare everyone and ask them questions about their privacy and their information. And it's just something to think about. That makes me think of the show on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. Oh, right. I haven't seen that one. It's in my watch list. (laughs) It's a good one to binge during the holiday season if you just have nothing else to watch. Although Hallmark holiday movies might top the list. I don't know. (laughs) I know. Yeah, there's so many. (laughs) 
Yeah, but it is very, it's different in a way because it focuses more on social media and the ethics behind that, Mm -hmm. but the targeted advertising, which is something we in marketing are concerned about too, you know, that's something on our minds, Right. the the targeted advertising and, you know, getting your information and using it to your advantage. Exactly. I I think a lot of people never read I mean, you're, sometimes when you're, like, for example, when you're using a free Wi-Fi network, the service agreement that you sign is just so random, and give you give, like, this consent to the receipt and collection, use, storage, disclosure of data that you may not even be aware that you're giving this away, and that's just to use free Wi-Fi. So it, it's, I believe that it's really unethical at times that people are being taken advantage of in this way, or they're not really aware of what they're giving up. Okay, I have a question for you. And it (laughs) may be going down this rabbit trail, if you will, maybe we should be having this conversation over a virtual party. But this is something that's on my mind a lot for companies to consider, you know, I guess, people have always traveled for work or gone to a coffee shop for meetings and Mm -hmm. logged on to the free Wi Fi wherever they're eating, or traveling. But, you know, during the pandemic, my mind keeps coming back to when companies were just so focused on kind of survival mode and using like your own technology and whatever Wi-Fi they had available, you know, it would seem like there are a lot of privacy concerns if employees are using their personal devices, random Wi-Fi to do business. Is that something that companies should be concerned about? Oh, yes, that's a huge concern for any, you know, cybersecurity analyst. It it is a huge concern. And that's why most companies do have measures and protocols where I know a lot of companies, they will force you to have some sort of VPN, the virtual private network, and it allows them to control the traffic on your phone. They can inspect it, modify it. And I know you you guys probably remember, I don't know if they still do this, but whenever you were allowed to install some sort of like, um, if you have some sort of work software on your cell phone, you had to sign an agreement that your your employer could erase all of the data on your phone if necessary. And, you know, it, it's it tr- you try to protect your data. It, it's difficult, but We definitely have, you know, you have certificates that are used that allow you to access certain sites. We have our user passwords, but it can be difficult to protect your data if you're using an unapproved Wi-Fi service. And I know Access Sciences doesn't do cybersecurity, you know, specifically as a service, but we have received work. um, We've done work with clients who have had the cybersecurity assessment done and revealed that they don't have a have a good grasp of what information they have and what systems that information lives in. Right. You know, that's the other component to cybersecurity is where is your data or where is your information? Who has access to it? And how long are you keeping it? I guess, what's the retention on it? Exactly. It's key. It's, it all works together, like auditing and understanding your data. You're right. Most companies don't understand how how much risk they carry until something bad happens 
you know, and then they just shut everything down and no one has access to anything. And there's like this really major swing into the other direction where it's too secure at times. Exactly. What do you think will be a trend in 2021 related to either cybersecurity or privacy? You know, I, I have hopes that people become more aware. I have seen where a lot of um, like your email passwords, a lot of people are using different types of authentication. I think that's really important, like using the strong, unique passwords and having two-factor authentication on everything. Like, that's my advice to everyone. You know, set up two-factor authentication on everything. And that's just a double check where you log in. And if it's a new device, they'll send you a text message and say, is this really you? And you can do that with all of your social media accounts, your email accounts, most of your banking accounts, if you you can set up a, a token. So most, you know, there are companies who offer these additional steps. It's just a lot of people don't opt in because they don't really understand how it protects them. And I do place blame on the industry and professionals for this because I feel like in, you know, in the next few years, we really need to educate the American public on how much of our data is being stolen because it's, it's unbelievable. But I'm, I'm definitely very passionate about that topic. Well, we'll have to generate some more content and get your SME <laughs> contribution. Write some more blogs and more podcasts, presentations. Sure, Let's do sure. it. <laughs> that would be fun. That would be fun. So I know in addition to ethical computing, you are very, very passionate about connecting, connecting students to computing and coding opportunities. So can you tell us a little bit about your experience with Futures Fund? Um, and I know you have some experience with Girls Who Code as well. Oh, sure. I love working with young people. Just based on my own experience, I, I felt in the beginning of my career that I did not have access to mentors. And I was kind of a team of one many times just encouraging myself. So I'm very passionate about encouraging girls to pursue STEM related disciplines. And it's important that we empower young people so that they can thrive, you know, in, in the future and that they understand some of the challenges that we face. So I've worked with several groups. Girls Who Code is one where I was asked to help set up a group at a private school here in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And I was just there initially to help them get started because they needed a developer and someone who could sign on and be a partner with making sure that they were able to get established at that school. And so I was really proud to help with that. And I think I got an email, a certificate saying that I was a facilitator and that was really cool. <laughs> to be a facilitator. And after that, it was, um, I think it's run by the school or some of their other volunteers, but I was really happy to be involved just getting them started. Another organization that I've spent many years working with is called Futures Fund. It's part of a company called, or a nonprofit, I'm sorry, called The Walls Project, which started here in town to help build up really like dilapidated areas in town by 
bringing in artwork and murals and just trying to clean up the community. And the person who created this program, um, he's just a very passionate person. He also created the Futures Fund, which is an initiative to reach out to kids in the community who don't have access to coding classes or, and it started with coding and there's a photography element too. So there, there are two tracks that the young people can choose. So they could choose like the coding and development track or the photography track. I started with that program in the first year. So it's really near and dear to my heart. I, I love working with all of those people there. And it's changed so much from the beginning when we were just <laughs> creating the curriculum like a few days before class and going in and teaching to now we have this fully thought out curriculum that takes the children, I'm sorry, the young people, the young coders through um, coding level one, coding level two, and three. The Futures Funds also helps to find them interns and work. And so it's really growing into a phenomenal program. That's so great to hear. I love stories like that. Is your young daughter interested at all in STEM or in coding? Or is she like, mom, no. You know, I think <laughs> I started them so young that it's just a part of their lives. I, I don't think I would even listen to them if they complained at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do try and make it fun for them. Right now, they're still using like the um, the block coding programs like Scratch and an Hour of Code. And like, so whenever I do classes for young kids, I'll use Hour of Code, which is super easy. It's done by code.org. It's free. And anyone can facilitate one of those classes. You get the kids in there. And the block code is they just drag and drop code. And and press like you just press play button to see if, if your logic works. So it's a great way to introduce your kids to coding. And it's free. So I encourage anyone to use like those methods. My kids are, my, it's funny because my kids get in trouble for um, remixing. Because I consider that pretty lazy. So <laughs> <laughs> and remixing code is taking someone else's code and hitting the remix button and just playing with it and so I am kind of hard on them I'm like no create your own code stop remixing other people's code that's hysterical <laughs> yes I'm probably they're probably annoyed by me by now <laughs> are your boys into gaming yes unfortunately they are <laughs> it creates a for me if you understand how I feel about computing one of the topics I discuss a lot in ethical computing is gaming and the gaming industry is not regulated enough. It, there's so many ethical issues. So I've, I'm really stressed about gaming. I do the best that I can to control like the type of games they play. I don't allow them right now to access like the um, internet while playing where they can play with other people. There's just a lot of ways and with children where you have to be extra careful. So that's a whole nother discussion. About. <laughs> it's, it's, there's a lot of pressure there. And for me, understanding where the risks are, I mean, I actually feel terrible for other parents because I understand the risk, right? So I can come up with a plan. 
But there are a lot of parents who don't understand the risk because they believe the marketing. You know, oh, this is safe for your children. You know, let them let them be free to play eight hours a day. And they don't understand what other access you're, they're getting by signing on to these devices. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of concern with that. Oh, yes. Not only just the screen time, but like you said, who they're possibly chatting to on the internet. Oh, yes. And just setting up the configuration using the parental controls, it's like a full-time job. And who has time for that, you know? Like, I'll <laughs> it, but it'll, it's really frustrating for me. And I'm considered, like, you know, an expert in some of these areas. And gosh, it, it's, it's difficult to protect your children online. But everything you get your children, you have to audit and monitor it. So like I said, another full-time job. Yes. And let's not even talk about social media, which I think is hysterical that one of the other women featured in the Women Who Code blog learned how to code by using social media. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah, it was it was Ashley. She wanted to um, customize her MySpace page, and that's how she learned you know, the basics of coding so she yep. could move around what she wanted to and put in new widgets. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. yeah, your first website is always like the best. I think my first one, I used something called front page, which no longer exists, but it was similar. <laughs> and I was so proud. And it was compared to t- today's standards, it, it just looked like a table, <laughs> like a few words, but I was really proud. <laughs> So, Shermaine, as much as I would love to continue having conversation, we'll have to do this again, maybe with a drink next time. We can talk more about the privacy and social media and all the other fun party topics. So thank you so much for being our guest today and for all of your work with Girls Who Code. And um, if you, as an audience, have not read the Women Who Code blog featuring the Access Sciences employees, check that out on our website. Thank you, ladies.